Tonight's Bible reading comes from Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through to 16. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went abroad and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, church. It's so wonderful to uh, be with you again. And yeah, just to reiterate what Andrew's saying, it's so exciting the fact we'll be able to be with you again. And we're so looking forward to being able to gather as God's people, as a community of God together. And please do come. And I do, I do know there's a hint of like, oh, if I get here and I'm the 80, I have to sit in the hall. But the beauty of sitting in the hall is that you're doing it with a whole bunch of your other brothers and sisters. And then after the service, you get to chat and, and ask, encourage one another. So it's a really wonderful thing that's around the corner for us. We'll obviously keep doing it safely and prudently, but there is much to look forward to. We are going to jump into Jonah, though. Uh, th- and also, thank you to all those that have done videos, Bible readings, prayers, songs, all sorts of things throughout this season. Uh, you've been a blessing to us, so um, thank you. Well, let us pray. As we begin, good and gracious God, as we always do, we thank you for your word. Thank you that in all parts of it, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, for training in righteousness, that it leads us to your son, Jesus. And thank you so much that it has relevance all the way back when it was written and to us today. Father, I pray that my words are pleasing to you, uh, that they are faithful, and that you help my brothers and sisters across the screen to engage with what it is that you are helping us to see and understand of who you are and what it means to be your child. So I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, yes, we are beginning a new journey in the book of Jonah. Um, In many ways, it's like this complex, perplexing, amazing, intriguing kind of book. If you've been around church since you were a little kid, I'm sure it brings up lots of good memories for you about Jonah and the big fish or the whale. I particularly remember um, my mom, she has this like big, whale 
fish thing and you, like, you put Jonah in there and you chuck him out. And you, when you're a kid, it's all exciting. Um, but even if you're not from church, you probably have heard of Jonah and the Whale if you're from the Western context because it's a quite, it is a memorable story. And it has this kind of ability to capture our, our imaginations. For some, it causes wonder. For others, it causes ridicule. But this is a divinely piece of inspired literature. It is our scripture, and it has immense uh, relevance to us. And it's amazing because through the story of this wayward, selfish, prideful prophet, and also this most brutal, rebellious, like the worst city it seems in history, we learn some amazing things about who we are, especially who God is, God's ability to transform us, and also God's heart for the nations and to be on mission. Just all in the book of Jonah. It's amazing. Uh, it's, a, it's a really incredible book. And so we're going to journey through it throughout uh, the month of October. If you haven't read Jonah all the way through, I'd encourage you to read it. I'm told it takes eight minutes. So set aside eight minutes. Uh, it'll be definitely worth your time as we go through it together. But before we start reading any part of God's Word, we pray as we do. But then it's helpful to ask, um, like, what is it that we're reading? And when we ask that question, I think there's two helpful ways to unpack it. Firstly, where does this book or this letter, whatever it may be, in this case, uh, Jonah, sit within the big story of God's plan, the narrative of Scripture? And then secondly, what type of literature is it? What genre is it so we can apply the right techniques to understand it? So for that first question, where does this fit in God's big unfolding story? Is it, we're in the Old Testament, so it's pre-Jesus' death uh, and resurrection. And Jonah is in the time where Israel is split into two. There's the northern, northern and the southern kingdom. He's from the north at the time of King uh, Jeroboam. And it's the, at the time where they're, oh, they're about to be exiled, really. And the northern tribe are particularly uh, morally and religiously corrupt. They're, they're far from God. And then the other thing is uh, that we learn about the, uh, the Assyrians are the ones that are actually going to come and exile the, uh, the northern tribes. Now, that is particularly interesting because who is it that God commissions Jonah to go and see? It's the Ninevites, which is the capital city of Assyria. Uh, that's just a really interesting piece just right at the get-go. And then the second part uh, to answer that question is, what kind of literature is this? Now, this is a narrative. It's, a, it's in the prophetic books, but it's actually like a narrative about a prophet as opposed to his prophecy. And because it's narrative and because it's Jonah and we're modern readers and uh, it's got a miraculous story about a fish and all sorts of things, people have asked, like, is this history or is it not? And when I've chatted to a number of you throughout the coming the, the weeks previous, they're like, oh, is Jonah real? Is he not? All these kind of things. So I thought it'd be helpful if we just tap into it for a moment. Basically, there is two ways we can understand, um, or two ways Christians, that is, so the, you know, Christians that we would call brothers and sisters, understand Jonah. One, it could, it's a real-life event, literal in every sense of the word. The other way of understanding the book of Jonah is that it is based on real people, but it's a bit more like a parable, similar to what Jesus does in his own parables. To be clear, we can't actually be certain either way, but there's heaps of things about the book that we really can be certain of. The first thing is that God, Jonah, the Ninevites are all real people. Well, God is God, but real characters in real life. No question about that. 
in the story, you kind of read them and they assume knowledge for the reader. Jonah, he's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, and yeah, with that King Jeroboam, and yeah, it's not a good time. And then we know the Assyrians are that empire that's north of Israel, which overtake them. The other thing to take into account is that in the New Testament, Jesus refers to Jonah a few times. And the way he talks about Jonah is that he is a real man. He was a real guy at the time. So whether, however you want to understand the story of it, if it's a parable or it's a literal real event, you have to take those certainties into account. And the second thing that I want to say about the, the historicity of the book is that the message and the, the core theology that it teaches is not actually completely dependent on whether or not the book is real. What is important is the author is encouraging us to read it as if it did happen, encouraging us to read it as if it's real events, inviting us to read it that way. And so that's the way that we're going to do it because that's how it's rhetorically done. So don't get bogged down in the discussion of is it history or not. How is the author trying to communicate it to us and what are the truths that it teaches us about God? And because it is God's word, the Holy Spirit can use it and change it, change us to shape us into likeness of Christ. And that's the way what we're going to approach the book of Jonah. And the reason I do want to say that is because Jonah is much more than a tale about a whale. It is an incredible story. And if your understanding at the moment is just about a prophet and a big fish, you're in for a wonderful surprise. And it is so eloquently and artfully written um, and will reveal, just to say what I said before, about who we are, who God is, what it means for God to transform us, and God's heart for the nations. So with all that in mind, we can now dive in to the book itself. I'll read again the first couple of words. It said, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Right at the get-go here, we get that is the word of the Lord. Right, God, Yahweh, which is what the Lord is, rec- is um, referring to here, uh, the personal name of God, he is key throughout this um, book. But what is interesting is the commission that the Lord gives. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, to the capital city of Assyria. Now, Nineveh at the time are an unusually brutal society. Now, when we think of ancient societies, we often think of them as, as being quite brutal. But Assyria is like the king of the pile. They are, like, I've read some of the stories about them in preparation. And, like, the, it is graphic and horrendous. Like, the beheadings and the piles of bodies and, like, putting people up on stakes like flags. Like, these guys are wicked. Wicked to the core. They're kind of like the brutality of ISIS with the power of the United States. These guys are the superpower at the time, but with that kind of brutality, it's, it's um, frightening. These are people that are definitely against God morally, religiously, uh, and who are physically their enemies. And so right at the get-go, though, we see the surprising mercy of God begin to just make its way through. Because... God is sending his own, an Israelite, to go to this nation. It sounds preposterous. It sounds absurd that God would extend mercy, that he would extend grace to the worst of the worst, to the enemies. 
But that is God's heart. A heart to see the lost be saved. A surprising heart for mercy. Now, you think that might kind of inspire Jonah. You know, that he's a prophet after all. You know, he might be, want to be on this, this mission to stop the Ninevites' wickedness and bring peace to Israel. But, you know, we all know what happens, right? Verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee the Lord. Jonah runs. Like God says, go this way, and Jonah goes that way. Right? He does the complete opposite of what Jonah says. It reminds me of my gorgeous, darling two-year-old daughter at the moment. It seems like her favorite thing to do is to hear what Elizabeth and I say and then and do the opposite. But that's just like what Jonah has done here. Like Nineveh is a trek over land. Jonah goes over the sea. Nineveh is off to the east. Jonah goes to the west. And Jonah, he's not just like going around the corner, right? He's going to Tarshish. And Tarshish is on like what in their minds was like the edge of the world out on the coast of Spain, looking out over the endless Atlantic Ocean, Jonah has bought a one-way ticket to the end of the world. But why run? Why does Jonah uh, have such a problem with God's commission for him? Why does he have such an issue? Now, he directly answers that in chapter 4, verse 2, but we're going to have to hold off to explore that in depth a bit more. Because at this level, we're just invited to... I suppose, take a guess. But take a guess as if we were 8th century Jews. What would they be thinking as they read it? Because it looks as though Jonah is refusing and mistrusting God. He's definitely refusing and mistrusting God. Like maybe he sees no practical uh, reason in order for him to, to do it. Like on a practical level, God is asking him, like a foreigner, to go into this land for him to preach repentance. Right? Imagine like a, a Jewish pastor in Berlin in 1941 preaching. Like that doesn't practically, it's not going to go very well for him, right? Maybe Jonah's thinking that on a practical level. And he's thinking, God, <laughs> your plan is not going to go so well here. He might also be thinking, well, this is a terrible theological idea, God. This makes no sense at all to do. Because Nahum, who is a prophet uh, in a similar kind of time, has already prophesied against Nineveh and said God is going to judge them and bring his uh, punishment on them. And Jonah's thinking, well, man, they got what's coming to them. You know what, God, they should have that. Why are we going to go preach some kind of message of repentance? That seems ridiculous. God, your plan's no good. I want no part of it. He's thinking, I've got a better one. I'm going to disobey you. Because at the heart of Jonah, he doubts that God's plan is good. He doubts that God is good. He hears God's word, but he can't think of a good reason why it is that God would send him to do that. Like if you're driving along and the GPS tells you to go that way, but you, know, you think that that way is the better way to go. And then you, you go that way and then you realize, oh gee, that way I actually had a, a traffic accident. I should have gone that way. We might not be able to see it, but it know, but the GPS knows best. God sees way beyond Jonah, and he knows what is best, and he's actually good. But Jonah doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust that God is good. And so he runs. How is it that we run? How is it that we might run from God? 
Because I don't think most of us get up in the morning and decide that we want to be evil or, or decide we want to run from God. Sometimes we, people like that, but we, we generally don't want to run from God when we wake up in the morning, right? We just, in a sense, we just want to be happy, we want to go about doing our thing. So we want to serve God, but there can be times where we know God calls us to, to certain things in, in situations, but we don't see it as being a good thing. Oh, if I followed God in that area at that time, man, that's not going to be good. We can think of better alternatives, and so we disobey. And in that way, we spiritually run from God. We might not be, might not be getting on a boat to Antarctica, but we take our eyes off God and do what we think is best. It might be we just justify sin. It might be, well, we'll come back to God and, and follow him in, to- in um, years' time. It might be that we know we're called to be Christ's ambassadors in every moment, to be messengers and ambassadors for him. But at times that's inconvenient. And at times that's, that, that's actually detrimental to be an ambassador for Christ to live and talk as his disciple. And so maybe in those inconvenient and detrimental times, like, well, I'll just, I'll not be an ambassador today or in this moment, we're running from God. Maybe even the more sinister way or the more intense way, which really mirrors Jonah most closely, is that we might think that some people are not worthy to be shared the gospel with for whatever reason, things they've done, the way that we relate to them. We might think they're not worthy. And so we run away from God because we don't think others deserve it. There's just a few ways that we, what it might look like for us to run from God. Because the confronting thing about Jonah is that what he does physically is what we are inclined to do spiritually. And so I think it helps us ask the question, are we running from God or are we running with God? For Jonah though, he's on the run. And there's a storm coming. In verse 4 and 5, it says this. So Jonah's got on the boat, out to sea. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And there was such a violent storm arose, and it threatened to break the ship up. And all the sailors were afraid. And each cried out to their own God, and they're throwing cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. I don't know if you picked it up, but as Jonah decides to leave God or to, to run away from God, he continues to go down. He's physically going down and down, down into Joppa, then down into the boat, down into a deep sleep. And as he goes down, what's happening for him physically is representing what's going on for him spiritually. And God sends a storm. In the Hebrew, it says he actually like hurled a storm in the way that you kind of hurl a spear. That's what's going on here. God is saying, I'm not going to let go of you, my prophet. I'm not going to let go of you, Jonah. And I'm not not going to let go of this mission to the Ninevites. And if Jonah won't go, there's a storm coming. Now, the storm is no normal event, right? The sailors, you can tell, they know this is not normal. This is obviously some kind of supernatural thing is going on. It is the hand of God. The sailors, they've been sailing for, we presume, that their life, right? They would know. And what we see here is the first time that God's direct hand is at work his providence, his sovereignty by hurling this storm. Later, we're going to see God continue to act in all sorts of ways. He's going to provide a fish and then make the fish vomit Jonah out. He's going to provide 
a, a plant, then provide a worm, then provide a scorching wind. The hand of God is so clearly evident throughout this whole book. God is sovereign and his hand is at work in the world. Now, the purpose of this storm is to stop Jonah, right? That's, that's clear. That he, he wants to stop Jonah. So is this a storm of judgment or is this a storm of mercy? In a sense, it's, it's kind of both, I suppose. But there's a lot more weight on the mercy side. You see, the storm was a result of Jonah's sin. He ran away from God. But the storm is also an incredible act of God's mercy. A moment to, to stop Jonah, to shake him to his senses. Because you see, God could have just let Jonah go. Mate, you go to the ends of the earth if you want to. I'll go get another prophet to do my work. Or he could have killed Jonah on the spot. God has the power to do that, but he doesn't. He has mercy. Because you see, the beauty of the storm is that it was the catalyst that allowed God to grab Jonah's attention. The terror of the storm was actually an act of mercy and grace on Jonah's life. In this week, I came across the story of a man named John Newton. That name might already ring a bell for you, but he's a man from the 1700s. He lived in England, and he was a Bible-believing guy. But he grew up, and he, he threw away his faith and became very rebellious. He then joined the Navy. That's not rebellious in itself, but he joined the Navy, and he was so rebellious that they kicked him out, and he became a, a worker on a slave trade ship. He was far gone, right? He says of himself, um, these are his words, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. Like, this guy's far gone. But one day, he was on, a, on one of his ships journeying back, and a huge storm came. And as the huge storm came, it was hurling the ship. And as it went under the wave, some of the sailors didn't think they'd come back up again. And John, he was assigned to the pumps, like to pump the water so it goes out of the boat. And he quotes himself saying to the captain, he says, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. And that word mercy came from his mouth, but it startled him. He went on to say, Mercy, mercy, what kind of mercy could there be for me? This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy in many, many years. After that, he then prayed to God and he began a journey of faith to then become God's child. Later, Newton would become a pastor and a hymn writer and he would pen the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's it shook him out of his slumber, right? It allowed him to see God and allowed him to see himself clearly. The storm was terrifying, completely undesirable, but God used it for his good purposes to bring Newton back to himself. Now, friends, God can use any and every type of storm and difficulty in life in order to, to shake us or to shape us or to to help us to understand something about ourselves, grow us into the likeness of Christ. And so has there been a storm or, or is there a storm which God could be using to shape you? Or how is he using it to shape you? That could happen in, whole, in a whole sort of, of different ways. But obviously in this season for us individually, socially, the world, we've gone through COVID, right? That has certainly been a storm in many ways. And for me, I think as I've been reading, praying, I've been chatting with God's people, and as Nadine prayed before, it is so clear 
that God is at work shaping us, molding us. For me, it has been just the importance of prayer, the importance of community, which we've lacked, but so keen to have that back again, about that dependence on Him. And there's been some ugly things in my life as other things have been stripped away that God has um, made very obvious to me. Because in these storms and difficult seasons, God can use them to shake us up for His good purposes. So friends, can I please encourage you? Like in this moment, we are, we are stepping out of lockdown and that brings a lot of joy. It also can bring some anxiety and I recognize that for sure. But use this time to reflect on what God has been doing in you. How he could have been shaping you and molding you more into the likeness of Jesus. What is something that he might be asking you to start or to stop or being uh, shaping you? Now for Jonah... His work and his transformation is still ongoing. But the storm is not just about him, is it? Because there's the sailors there. And they go on when we have a look at verse 6. Um, Jonah's in a deep sleep down the bottom and the captain goes down to him and says, How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Now, as the sailors come more and more into the picture, they actually perform a really interesting role in the, the story. Because these pagan sailors are acting much more godly than Jonah does. It's very ironic what is going on. Because you think that in a storm, the, the prophet should be the one, oh man, we've got to call on God or I'm calling on God. But who is it that does it here? It's the captain. And in the same words that the Lord said to him in verse 1, arise Jonah and go, the captain says to Jonah, arise Jonah and call on your God. He's playing the role of God in a sense. And as we look at verses 7 and 8, we see that as the waves are tossing them, as the wind is in their hair, the water's overflowing them, they're fearful. They start to cast lots. A superstitious thing that's going on, but even God's hand is amongst the lot. Reveals Jonah to be the one uh, who is the cause. And the sailors, they ask him a whole bunch of questions, but basically ask, who are you and who do you belong to? A whole bunch of questions. Who are you and who do you belong to? And Jonah actually gives kind of the perfect theological answer. He says, verse 9, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, it's not hard to see. There is a complete mismatch, isn't there, going on between the words that Jonah says and the actions which he is doing. His faith is definitely shallow and he's definitely been a hypocrite, right? The prophet claims to do one thing, but then he goes and does the other. His theology of the mind is spot on, but his actions and works do not reflect that at all. And the sailors, man, they're the ones to point it out to him. Like when you have a look at verse 10, they're basically like, mate, are you, are you serious? The God of the sea and the land, you're trying to run away from him. What are you doing? And in a sense, it's kind of like a little just a little sharp jab as we move through because it encourages all of us definitely myself to peer into our own life and ask is there a contrast between what we say and then how we live the things we think about god and our theology and then how we we live it out now of course we're growing into the likeness of christ we make mistakes but is there a fundamental mismatch between those things we're encouraged to ask is there a consistency between our words and our walks.
Is there a consistency in our spiritual walk? For Jonah, this confession, has it changed his heart? We're not sure. But it's certainly got the, the sailors fearing. When you have a look at verse 11, the sea is getting rougher and rougher and they say, what have we got to do to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah replies, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Jonah confesses and he says, well, yep, it is my fault. You've got to throw me into the sea. Now, why does Jonah want to be thrown into the sea? Is he repenting and accepting the punishment for his crime? Or is he doing the opposite? A bit more like, oh, I'd rather die than go to Nineveh with these guys. Um, they, <laughs> they can do my dirty work. Now, it's probably a bit of both. Probably a bit of both that's going on, and, and all the commentators tend to say that. Because we see that the movement of Jonah from being a very self-righteous man is a, is a slow one. It's a slow movement. But did you notice the focus of his statement? The focus of his statement was on the peril that he put the, the sailors in. What he had done to them when he uses the word you. And by saying, throw me into the sea so it will become calm. It's like Jonah is saying, you're dying, but really I should be dying. I'm the one who God is angry with. Throw me in. It's my fault. Substitute me. Now the sailors, and, and um, at this point they're still more admirable than Jonah. Uh, they go, oh, Jonah, man, we don't want to kill you. So they, they, even then they still try to row back and get to the shore. Um, but the wind gets, and the, and the sea gets worse and worse and decides to throw him in. And even at that point, they recognize, God, you have decided to choose and it's your right to choose. They ask for God's compassion on them as they do it. And then 15, they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea became calm. Jonah had substituted himself for the life of the sailors. Now, does that remind you of someone? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. He says, Jesus talking, says that he is a greater Jonah and that he's going to give the people the sign of Jonah. And one of the things that Jesus means by that in being a greater Jonah and giving the sign is that in the same way that Jonah sacrificed his life to save the sailors, Jesus is going to sacrifice and substitute his life for the world to save us. But unlike Jonah, who's thrown into the waters of the sea, to actually be saved. Jesus throws himself onto the wrath of God. He actually died, bearing the weight of our punishment, bearing this, the shame and punishment of our sin, substituting himself for us, throwing himself into that. Now that is surprising mercy. That's an incredible act of grace. Because you see, with Jonah and his problems, right? His problems was he didn't trust and he didn't obey God because he didn't like what God is doing. He didn't think that God was good. He didn't trust that God was good. He couldn't trust that God could be committed to justice and also be committed to goodness. And for us, we are at, at peril of believing that same lie today. 
believing that God and his commands are not completely good. But when we look at the cross, when we look at Jesus, we know that to be an incredible lie. Because God is ultimately just and ultimately good. Because a God that throws himself, that substitutes himself, shows that he is trustworthy. And he shows that he's a, a God who is ultimately and purely good. For the sailors, like just seeing the hand of God and it going calm when Jonah goes in for them was enough. Verse 16, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. The impact of God's work at that time was so great for them that they, it says that they feared the Lord. They commit to him. They're committing to Yahweh, not just like this, the gods who they were talking to before. No, it is the God, Yahweh. They feared him. Okay, the sailors, they are, they are like the opposite of Jonah here. And the beauty of this is in the irony between what Jonah sought to do and actually what happened. Because God demonstrates his amazing mercy and grace in this. In Jonah's desire to flee God, in Jonah's desire to flee God's mission to the pagan world and for them to encounter God, that's actually what ends up happening. This like anti-missionary is actually the one that God uses in order to bring these sailors into uh, relationship, into allegiance to Yahweh. And isn't that just the beauty of God in his mercy and his grace and his sovereignty? That he can use just even the most opposite circumstances to bring about his purposes and bring people to himself. To show his good, perfect purposes for humanity. So in your endeavors in sharing Jesus and seeking his name to be going out, hopefully we have a much greater heart than Jonah. And if God can use even that for his good purposes, to bring people to him, don't fear that God cannot use us, that God cannot use any sort of circumstances to bring anyone back to him. His plans are ultimately good, whether or not we think that in the moment or not. And he can do the miraculous to demonstrate his, good, his great mercy, to transform both the individual and also the neighbors around us. As for Jonah, his transformation is still ongoing. Uh, we know Jonah, he didn't perish in the waves. Again, the surprising mercy of God. He comes, he sends a fish to, to swallow him up. And that fish kind of becomes like this underwater cocoon. God is going to use to transport Jonah, but also continue to transform him. We're going to look at that next week. Before then, let me pray. Our good and gracious God, we thank you so much that you are good. And God, we're sorry for the times that we disobey you, where we think that our plans are better, where we don't trust that you are good. Father, please do continue to give us a heart for the lost, the ones that you've called us to. The Lord Jesus has instructed us that we go make disciples of all nations, sending us to the ends of the earth. Father, please help us do that in our own neighborhoods. And if you do send us across the ends of the earth, please help us to respond with obedience and to run with you, not against you. We need your Holy Spirit's help for this. So we ask that as well.
In Jesus' name, amen. The other thing, friends, as we uh, continue in this series, is uh, one of the key themes in Jonah uh, is the idea of mission and evangelism. And there's this book, uh, which is called How to Talk About Jesus. And the deacons and pastors have been reading that over the last couple of months. And we're going to be selling that um, here from next week uh, for $20. And we really encourage you to read it. It's a wonderful resource in able to uh, think about what it looks like for us to do evangelism in a, in a skeptical culture, in this culture which we live in. So next week, this is going to be up the back for $20. Highly encourage you to pick one up to read it and see how we can apply it and be on mission together in the world. We're now going to worship our God in song uh, with a song that we learned last week, Remembrance. Just worshiping and celebrating the fact uh, that Jesus has brought us life. So please worship with us.